there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Honda opened a plant in Marysville, Ohio, and in doing so became the first Asian company to manufacture automobiles inside the USA. Drew Barrymore hosted Saturday Night Live at the age of seven, while Howard Cosell quit announcing boxing and discussed over the Larry Holmes Tech Scob fight. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial opened in Washington, D.C., while Brezhnev's funeral was held in Red Square, and Yuri Andropov took over as leader of the Soviet Union. Finally, in a move that has had no negative impact whatsoever on society. The FCC dropped limits on how many ads could be shown per hour on TV and how long those ads could be. We're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then it's on to November of 1982. Madge, thanks for the house call. The wedding's in a couple of hours. You should have these hands and nose. <laughs> Dishwashing. What'll I try? Everything. And use palm olive liquid. You're soaking in it. Dishwashing liquid? It's palm olive. It softens hands while you do dishes. Mild? Makes heaps of thick, long-lasting suds, too. And palm olive softens hands while you do the dishes. Introducing Diet Coke. You're gonna drink it just for the taste of it. Living good with Diet Coke. This is the one from Coca-Cola. We're gonna taste with just one calorie. Just for the taste of it. Just for the taste of it. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my host, Scott Weinberg. Did want to open up this episode with a quick memorial. Uh, we lost another very good actor uh, recently. Miss Darlan Flugel passed away just a few days ago. And uh, you, the, the name might not be instantly recognizable, but to fans of the 1980s, that you definitely know Darlan Flugel. She was in uh, Battle Beyond the Stars. She made her debut in 1978's uh, Eyes of Laura Mars. And she was also in Once Upon a Time in America. She was in To Live and Die in L.A., Running Scared. We'll get to her a lot more throughout the 80s. She, uh, Lock Up was her last uh, relatively big film with Stallone. And she passed away way too young at 64. So we just wanted to send some love out to her and her family and her fans. Uh, and now let's move on with November of 1982. Yeah, we're going to jump right in. Actually, November and December of 1982, fairly packed months. And so we're going to start with a weird, weird drama called Five Days, One Summer. Their passion, their secret, their obsession. The final test, the test of time. Five days. 
five days, one summer. <laughs> Drew, I was thinking about you when this movie was over. Don't take that the wrong way, but I was like, this is one of his favorite pet peeves. And what, what is one of the thematic points in this movie that is one of your pet peeves? The incest? Uh, not that specifically, but it's the the May December romance that was so. Oh, this is this is the grossest example of it. And believe me, there is no better way to start this podcast than with a little light incest. Sean Connery and Betsy Brantley in a deadly dull romantic drama uh, set in the Alps. It's the kind of movie that makes you like want you to wonder throughout the film. Why should I care about these two people ostensibly in love up in the Alps, which is gorgeous, by the way. It's a beautiful looking movie, but boy, is it dull. And then Lambert Wilson shows up and he's like the third in the love triangle. And then you realize Sean Connery and Betsy Brantley are niece and uncle. And it's not even towards the end. They drop the bomb pretty quickly. I didn't know if that was meant to be taken literally or not. I thought it was meant to be like... No, there's that scene early on. And it's it's probably 15, 20 minutes in when he's leaving. for. It's a flashback. And he's leaving for India. She's upset that he's leaving. And she won't come to say goodbye to him. So he goes to find her. And when he finds her... She's like eight years old. She's a little, little, little girl, and she's upset that he's going to India. Will you ever come back from India and have sex with her? It's disgusting. And Fred Zinneman, who directed this, uh, you know, Fred Zinneman is a legend and directed a ton of classic Hollywood films. The reviews for this movie drove him out of the business. He literally quit because he was so hurt. He directed one more thing after this, but this was his last feature, I believe. It's a perfect storm of all these things from the early 80s that we don't like, which is great directors being given garbage material towards the end of their career. We don't like that. We don't like May-December romances that are meant to be austere and charming and classy, but in fact, they're just gross with a nice coat of paint. I'd also like to, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Here's my first hot take for 2018 here on the podcast. I'm ready. Mountain climbing on film is never interesting, ever, because here's what mountain climbing is. Either you fall or you don't. And the rest of it's just waiting. It's vertical waiting. Except for the first five minutes of Cliffhanger, I will agree with you. Oh, my God. And in this movie, whoo, there's so much mountain climbing. Even after the big shocking reveal comes out, this thing tries to take some twists and turns about who that is in the ice and about why Lambert Wilson's upset and about the town and about... It is the gift that keeps on stinking. If this was a horror or an action or a sci-fi movie that was, that was this bad you could probably still get a little bit of entertainment out of its best moments. But this movie's just deadly dull. I felt like I was being punished halfway through it. Okay, now I'm also instating in the new year a new policy. I'm calling it the Monsignor policy. I reserve the right to tap out. For the books, when we do the books, I will watch everything all the way through, every second of every excruciating movie. But for the podcast... I may occasionally tap out. I figure as long as we admit it, then that's fair. I made it about an hour 10 into this one, and I was like, nope, I got it. And honestly, I don't care if she ends up with Frenchie McMountain Climber. I don't care if Sean Connery falls off a mountain and has a heart attack. I don't care if he fucks his niece. It's The whole movie just bugs me. Let's move on. All right, what's next? An absolutely ridiculous horror movie (laughs) that I thought I had seen many years ago, but I hadn't. And boy... What a goofball mess is Time Walker. Space and time. Two dimensions we dream of conquering. But perhaps they have already been conquered. Not by man, but a form of intelligence 
far more evolved and far more powerful. Time Walker. Now, our time belongs to him. The story of a journey home. Time Walker. Nothing can stop him. Not even time. Dude, I saw this on Mystery Science That's Theater. That's where I knew uh, it from, but I thought I had seen it as a kid as like, uh, maybe it was Windwalker or Sky Bandits or something with a similar title. It's a mummy movie where... It's sort of a mummy movie. They kind of want it both it, ways, It almost they? plays like a, a prequel cousin to Stargate. How about that? Because it's a mummy <laughs> that's also a space alien. There are lessons that this movie tries to impart that we are going to learn from another movie later this month. Don't open old shit that you're not sure about, like old boxes or old coffins. Don't touch weird plant shit. It's just that this movie doesn't do it very well. Once a film is given the MST3K treatment, anything we have to say beyond that would be redundant. And when you see it on Mystery Science Theater, it's under a different title. It's Being from Another Planet, which is how I saw it the first time. I did not know that was Time Walker until I made it 10 minutes into this, and I'm like, I have seen this movie. I know I have seen this movie. Crucified by Joel and the Bots. So, How excited were you when you started seeing 80s films on Mystery Science Theater 3000? Oh, it was terrific. Terrific. For the first several seasons, it was all old stuff, 70s and before, right? Yeah, and then when they got the rights to stuff like, I, I remember when they got the Lee Van Cleef, Vincent Van Patten TV show, uh, The Master, and they did several of those that had been combined as movies. Delightful. 80s TV in the hands of Mystery Science Theater was just delicious, man. Um, this next one, I was not, even though it is available from Warner Archives, it was not streaming, and so it's my own fault. I did not get hold of it in time for the episode, but I did find the musical numbers on YouTube. So let's talk a little bit about Heidi's song, the best loved story of a little girl who brings joy to the lives of all around her. Let the I got someone here to warm it. Featuring Lauren Green as Heidi's grandfather. And Sammy Davis Jr. as the villainous head rat. Miserable rat. Heidi's Song, a musical for the whole family. This is a Hanna-Barbera adaptation of the, uh, I will almost said infamous. <laughs> what, an infamous story of Heidi? The With, infamous story. Yeah. This oh. is the other one. This is where Heidi really got fucking Yeah, dark. where Heidi was like, she goes to help this, <laughs> this handicapped kid and they lock her in a basement. Heidi the biker. This is not Hanna-Barbera's worst feature, but it's no Charlotte's Web. They were not a theatrical unit for the most part. And when they did make the attempt to go theatrical, we're going to see that also from Rankin-Bass later this month. It feels to me like none of these companies did what they needed to to make the jump, which was commit to theatrical quality animation. And it's a real bummer when you're watching the numbers here. Because this was a giant Paramount release. This was their Thanksgiving holiday family picture, and they had a real marketing campaign behind it that I remember. And This is a movie that I knew as a kid and 100% forgot existed. I literally <laughs> forgot it ever existed. And it, it's okay. It's charming. I mean, passable for kids. It's got a fun voice cast. Now, here's the thing. Not having seen the film, I couldn't tell you what the story to this thing was on a bet. The first thing I saw was a number called Dreams, which honestly played like an animated version of the erotic version of the musical number from SOB after they went back and reshot it. 
There's a little bit of animation in there that I thought was kind of nice, where they, it looks like they actually pushed it up to animating on ones instead of TV animating on threes or fours. As I watched, the numbers got progressively more TV animation. Like, one was called Imagine, which was super empty calorie pretty, like a Disney theme park song. And then I saw Ode to a Rat, which I guess that's from a real movie, but... I would have had a hard time guessing I would fit with anything else. And then Unkind Word, and that's what friends are for, where this lunatic rallies animals to battle by singing a terrible song. It got progressively rougher as I watched the numbers. By the end, it was like crayons on a kid's menu, man. It was tough compared to some of the earlier stuff. Was there not some kind of a Heidi resurgence? Why would I know Heidi unless she was, or like Pippi Longstocking, also had kind of a resurgence in the 80s? TV. They were in TV rotation, and this is what's weird about our pop culture is we absorbed a lot of pop culture from the 30s and 40s and 50s, whether we liked it or not, because that's what was available for TV licensing. So I think we picked up more than we realized we picked up, and a lot of stuff that you couldn't get my kids to watch some of what we watched. Shirley Temple movies, I can't imagine, have much shelf life now. It's always the same all over. My grandmother, God rest her soul, God bless her, tried to get me into Shirley Temple or older, th- and I would pretend to like it or pretend to watch it because she'd put on Friday the 13th Part 4 for me. But when she tried to show me stuff that she knew from when she was young, I was bored stiff by Shirley Temple. So, yeah, I have no idea what Heidi's song is about. I will say that it looks like a TV company trying to do a theatrical feature. And that always bugged me. There's quite a few kids' films on this episode where the definition of what a kids' film was in 1982 was really different than what it is now. Uh, And our next one's a great example. We now introduce you to the oddest Donald Westlake adaptation you'll ever see. That's so fucking crazy. I can't get my head around that. I can't. That's true. We're talking about Gary Coleman's second and last feature film. Gary Coleman is Jimmy the Kid, and these kidnappers are planning the child heist of the year. Brilliant organizational planners. Well, first we're going to lower the back door of that truck. Who planned this thing? The Three Stooges? Downright me. Hey! You guys just broke the law, you know that? And there's only one man that can stop them. Calling me in was the smartest thing you could do. Jimmy the Kid. This is horrific movie. Would you believe hysterical? Jimmy the Kid. May a camel lose its lunch on Erica Strata. I did not know that this was based on a Westlake novel. Now, now, have you read the source material? Oh, I have, and I love the Dortmunder books. And you've probably seen other Dortmunder movies. You've seen The Hot Rock with Redford. Yep, that's part one, right? Yeah, probably seen the George C. Scott when the bank shot. That's number two, yeah. So if you technically wanted to watch the Dortmunder series in order, those three movies would be the unofficial franchise. Here's what really breaks my heart before we even talk about this movie. Can you imagine if Jonathan Demme had gotten hold of the rights to the whole Dortmunder series with Paul Lamatt and had done a real adaptation that was directed like a movie starring human beings? Because that is not the case. Westlake is known as what what he's most famous for incorporating a lot of good humor into his hard-boiled crime novels and that was what kind of that that's what kind of set him apart from other crime writers, right? He's of the tradition of crime writing that like Gregory McDonald and the Fletch novels are. Carl Hyacin is this kind of guy. They're funny, but they're not funny in the sense that they're structured like haha jokes. It's just the characters are so rich and eccentric. Okay, so how would you say that this film works at adapting that that novel? It's infuriating. 
I feel bad not only for Gary Coleman here, but I feel bad for Paul Lamatt. And I believe I've spoken already here about my affection for Paul Lamatt in general. I think he's a really good actor who, for whatever reason, just he was a little too average guy, I think, to become a movie star. And the idea of him as Dortmunder, a guy who's just kind of a down-on-his-luck crook, who's got his family around him that is dependent on him. He's a guy who you're rooting for, even though you probably shouldn't, but you are. This movie is written and directed as live-action cartoons, so it's sub-Apple Dumpling Gang terrible farce where... The first time Paul Lamette, like hits his thumb, there's a bow, wow, 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 and he goes, and there's yeah, no, it, it oh, almost God. feels like like watched the final cut, and they thought, well, we originally wanted to do a Donald Westlake adaptation that would appeal to young adults and children as well, you know, and then somebody went, eh, it doesn't work, add goofball sound effects so people know it's a kid's movie. What a fun cast. Don Adams, Ruth Gordon, D. Wallace, Cleavon Little, Avery Schreiber, and like you said, Pat Morita. You would think just by accident, pointing a camera at these people every eight minutes would be fun. It's not. I found Don Adams excruciating. In drag. And, and his lines, there's two lines that I really, one was the one I quoted at the beginning, may a camel lose its lunch on Eric Estrada, as they're going by cops. Okay, uh, not funny at the time. What am I going to do? I lost my boy. I know how you feel, Herb. One of my tits is missing. He's bad in this movie. Ruth Gordon occupies a very specific place in pop culture. She was America's crazy little old lady who will say anything in front of a camera. And I think we kind of always have that space in pop culture. Betty White has that role right now. But about the good thing about Ruth Gordon is she could do the dirty mouth old lady. But if you happen to give her a line that was legitimately insightful or clever... She could nail that, too. There's none of that in this film. She is adrift in this movie. My only point with that is somebody needs to give Betty White her Harold and Maude. Please. This is directed by Gary Nelson, uh, who gave us the original Freaky Friday and Drew's favorite, The Black Hole. He would only go on to direct one more feature, uh, Alan Quartermain and The Lost City of Gold. He was stopped before he killed again. Yeah, Drew, you can have this next one. I want nothing to do with it. Yeah, this is, we're not done with these. We've got one more after this one, but here we go with Bugs Bunny's third movie, 1001 Rabbit's Tales. What holds more thrills than Superman 2? What has more bite than Jaws 2? What packs more punch than Rocky 3? What's up, Doc? It's Bugs Bunny's third movie, 1001 Rabbit Tales, the greatest movie sequel of them all. It's the best of the Warner Brothers classic cartoons, along with some new cartoons and featuring everybody's favorite characters. So join Bugs and the whole gang as they prove fairy tales do come true. Bugs Bunny's third movie, A Thousand and One Rabbit Tales. The legend marches on. You don't happen to have any suntan oil on you, do you? I did the math on this one. It's a 77-minute compilation of 12 truncated classic shorts and some really lame wraparound. This is an era where these execs had no connection to this stuff, and it wasn't thought of the way it is now, which is now there is a real emphasis placed on the guys who created this stuff. And, you know, even though the first two movies were curated by director, you know, Frizz Freeling had one movie, Chuck Jones had one movie. This one is several different directors. It's the first time they did that. Any of these is only going to be as good as whatever material they use. This one is really not well curated at all and the new stuff is very off-putting 
what's weird is they begin it like that's entertainment. That's the perfect format for these. Just say, hey, Bugs Bunny's awesome. Here's three great Bugs Bunny cartoons, and then I'm fine. Instead, that goes right out the window, and Bugs and Daffy are competing salesmen, and every sales call they make is an excuse to cut to an old cartoon. And, dude, they butcher these things this time. When these things would show up on TV at night, though my sister and I, who were like the Cisco and Ebert of Looney Tunes, to be like, oh, my God, they cut out the joke about the, the baby grabbing the money. They cut that joke. Because we had seen every one at least three times, so we knew – one of my very favorite ones is in this, which is Alibaba Bunny. Literally my favorite. When Daffy Ducks says, Mine, 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 down, down, down. Consequences, schmonsequences, as long as I'm rich. <laughs> God, is that. I'm a greedy miser. That's a beautiful line. I'm rich. He goes, I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I'm socially secure. <laughs> Tell me that's a joke written for a kid. <laughs> now, my bottom line. There are a few things in the world more blissfully appealing and fun and funny as the original Looney Tunes. Most of them are brilliant, and even the ones that are only B-plus are worth watching. Do your children a favor. Do yourself a favor. Either dig up the originals, buy one of the DVD sets, and enjoy them the proper way. To watch these films truncated and just wedged into a, oh, we need a movie to put in theaters. Let's uh, hire five editors to cut our stuff into ribbons and put it in theaters. It's offensive. I want nothing to do with it. No excuse anymore. Also, speaking of no excuse, aside from the fact that it was directed by a very famous person, there is very little, unfortunately, that we can recommend about Piranha 2, The Spawning. Sleek. Fierce. Savage. Deadly. The Piranha. centuries nature's most ferocious killer until now the new breed is here faster more ferocious and infinitely more deadly piranha 2 flying killers uh well here's my notes nope and there's an exclamation point Dull, period. Only Lance Henriksen adds a spark. Mention Cameron. This was James Cameron's directorial debut, and we are grateful to Piranha 2 for giving one of our best, most interesting sci-fi directors his foot in the door. The truck driver was now a filmmaker, and I will never begrudge the film for getting him his career, but it is literally just like a very lifeless remake of Piranha, only this time in a couple of scenes, the Piranha unconvincingly fly. And we should say that with an asterisk, him directing this movie, because he stepped in to help when shit wasn't working. And a lot of this is not his. And for a long time, he refused to let them really saddle him with it. There's a guy named Miller Drake, and he came out of the same. He was a guy. He was one of Dante's assistant to an assistant. He worked in the same sort of trailer end of the Roger Corman factory. So he seemed like the right guy to make the jump and be the guy to direct the Piranha follow-up. And that's why Cameron ended up being the guy that replaced him, is he was already in the Corman system as well. So when things kind of fell apart, somebody had to be there. The few slightly interesting attack scenes might have been Cameron's work because he was pretty good at special effects. But I would love to be able to say that I love this movie. It's underrated and it's fun and it's funny and it's got this person in it. Nope, it's just junky 
it really looks like it was just wedged together over the course of like three sloppy shoots. I think that's exactly what it is. Is as a guy who was working in special effects, he saw the opportunity as all right. Well, if if I need to save this thing, nobody's going to blame it on me if it doesn't work. It's Piranha Two, and I didn't start it. And it is nice to see where the relationship between Cameron and Lance Henriksen started. Well, and clearly it fits into his underwater fetish. It makes sense as a Cameron movie, even though it didn't start with him. It is certainly in keeping with the things that have obsessed him throughout his career. So now we switch gears to a much more serious film, an interesting low budget. uh, Was this an indie, Drew? This was a studio release. I believe it was just an indie. It was staggered. It was one of those released almost like a faith based thing where it came out in waves around the country. So it depends on where you were as to when you saw it, but it began its rollout right at the end of 1982. This is another starring role for the underrated Dennis Christopher. In the Vietnam War drama, Don't Cry, It's Only Thunder. The true story of a soldier torn between the war he was sent to fight and the children he desperately tried to save. This kid can't be a day over 17. Charlie don't check for ID before he shoots you, man. Charlie, this kid shot himself. He was one man against too many obstacles. You are the saddest excuse for a soldier I've ever seen. But he would fight to the end to save the abandoned children. You're okay. Dennis Christopher. You're okay. Susan St. James in the tough and touching story. Don't cry. It's only thunder. Not a bad movie. I like the early Robert England in it, who I think has a pretty nice, sizable uh, supporting role and is good. And this is, I believe, the final feature film performance from Susan St. James who we've seen from High Cost of Living and um, Carbon Copy. It's very much an issue-driven movie. This is, you know, we're still just at that point where we're starting to deal with Vietnam in a very real way in movies. And you've got stuff like First Blood the month before, where clearly now we've started dealing with it in a pulpier way. And it felt like movies were loosening up, and you were able to tell different stories including sympathetic stories. And I think that was the real sea change that started to this happen. And so feels to me like somebody saying, I'd like to start this conversation by saying, hey, look, not every American soldier overseas or, or not even most were awful people. A good, a good portion of us really were trying to do a, a decent thing. And the same with the Vietnamese, because I think up until then, we'd had a really simplistic view of them on film. And even something as complex as the deer hunter i still think trades in very basic stereotypes on the other side it's interesting this movie feels like although it's not a great movie by any means or particularly well-made movie it does feel like an interesting step and i know that it was something that the army liked a lot i imagine it would be a lot like now as we get these big oscar type movies that are about the war and about veterans but then we also have you know little ones little films that pop up here and there like you said, I was a little bored with it, but I was also gained some respect for it because it's a conversation that should be had. Um, this next one is a movie that barely got a theatrical release in 1982. Over the years, Paramount has worked to kind of renovate this film's reputation. And to some degree, I think it's worked. There's now even a Criterion Collection DVD of the film. It is the controversial and deeply pulpy White Dog. He was a beautiful white dog, the perfect companion, until she discovered someone trained him to attack and kill at will. That dog has got to be stopped before he kills somebody. Christy McNichol, Paul Winfield, Jameson Parker, and Burl Ives star. White Dog. This is from Sam Fuller, uh, the director of Pick Up on South Street, Shot Corridor, 
big red one. And it's the kind of movie that really could only be made by somebody who's either like first timer or a serious veteran who just doesn't give a fuck anymore, who says, you know, oh, you have a problem with the film I'm making? Tough, because I'm Sam Fuller. This was a film that a lot of people tried to make, and I love that Curtis Hansen was the first guy to get his hands dirty on the script, like really trying to figure out what this movie was, and that he got Polanski involved as director. Yeah, in a nutshell, it's a film about a trainer who tries to retrain a dog who was trained to be racist, was trained to hate black people. It's a Hollywood actress who finds the dog and takes him home and then through a series of incidents, realizes it's not just that he's an attack dog, it's that he's an attack dog who only attacks black people. The first instinct is everybody says, destroy the dog. And she finds a black trainer played by Paul Winfield, who is obsessed with the idea of taking one of these white dogs, one of these dogs that has been raised to be racist, that has been abused from birth onward, and break that programming. And he believes he can do it. And the movie is, can you break programming? It is a blunt tool as a racial um, allegory. There is no question that this movie is trying to make a big statement about race, but it's doing it under the guise of a really pulpy, almost horror film. Yeah, I love the question of, well, you know, in today's world, we would just say, oh, that's a bad dog, put it down. But that doesn't really solve the problem of, of people who do these things, who take it as the film portrays it like an animal, or take it as the film means it like a person. It's like... Is a person um, salvageable? Is somebody who is uh, evil and rotten, are they curable? Or or is it once you've reached a certain level of depravity, is that it? You're worthless. Well, all of these intentions are good intentions. And Fuller is a guy I really respect and admire. And I, I got a chance to meet him a couple of times. And he was everything you think he would be. He was an old cigar-smoking, fast-talking, ex-newspaper reporter, storyteller, raconteur, who was just clearly this guy had lived 50 different lives and was amazing at talking to you about perspectives from all of them. And yet this was a guy that was attacked pretty much all the way through production for this being a racist film. I've got to mention that really aided Fuller because that certainly wasn't why he wanted to make the movie. That certainly wasn't the intent of the movie. And when you see the ending of this film, it's got a bonkers final twist. And it's a really sweaty, ugly movie to begin with. But that final twist says everything about where Fuller stands. And while the movie isn't subtle, I don't know how anybody can look at this film and say that it is anything but fully on the side of tearing down racial hatred. Here's a, a quote from director Sam Fuller. Shelved the film without letting anyone see it? I was dumbfounded. It's difficult to express the hurt of having a finished film locked away in a vault, never to be screened for an audience. It's like someone putting your newborn baby in a goddamn maximum security prison forever. Moving to France for a while would alleviate some of the pain and doubt that I had to live with because of White Dog. It's a shame. Like, it came out for just a moment, evidently, in Detroit, and had a very, very limited run, and then got pulled. And it was years and years later before anybody was allowed to really see it commercially in the United States. It played overseas, and it did okay. I saw it at the Draft House. They've screened it, and Criterion salvaged it. It is available as part of the Criterion Collection. As of 2008, it's a fascinating morality play. The movie has a lot of interesting ideas, and it, it works as a parable. It works as a, a message movie, but it also works as just like a, a, a smart psychological thriller. And Christy McNichol is really good in it. Well, I was going to say, I, I feel like this is almost the end of Christy McNichol's heyday. She seems kind of fragile in this movie. I think McNichol is a kid who she had a lot thrown at her up front. She got very famous very quickly. 
I look at her in this movie. She's a kid. She's super young in this film, but the character she's playing is an old jaded actress who's been around and she's already run down by the business. And that kind of breaks my heart a little bit watching her appear like she is already kind of worn out from by things at a point where I, I really feel like she was just starting to get some control over who she was as an actor. You don't do this if you're just trying to, you know, pick mainstream down the middle safe movies. This is an interesting call for her. This is I, I respect Sam Fuller a lot. I believe this was an angry statement from a person and it was misconstrued. I think the film has a clear moral compass that deals with some difficult issues and has some tough scenes, but definitely does have its heart in the right place. This next one I had a soft spot for forever, but I had not seen it in a long time. So my question going in is, would my affection remain for Alone in the Dark? When I was a little kid, I was scared to death to be alone in the dark. The worst thing of all was the thing under the bed. Billy! Alone in the Dark. Rated R. Uh, this is my least favorite Uwe Boll film. Don't understand Christian Slater. <laughs> All right. No. Now, here's the thing. To those of you who know the video game and the terrible uh, Uwe Boll adaptation, to people of my generation, when we hear Alone in the Dark, we don't think of that movie uh, or that video game. We think of the 1982 Jack Shoulder film starring Martin Landau, Donald Pleasance, Jack Palance, and Dwight Schultz. The entire asylum is run by electricity. And it snaps off one night, and all the loonies get out, and they believe that their doctor, Dwight Schultz, is trying to kill them. It definitely has its slow spots, but I really like this movie. I think it holds up. I love the performances, and uh, I think it's a a good piece of B-movie horror. I liked it more than I thought I would when I went back to it. And it's funny, because this is one of those movies that uh, they lean on pretty heavily in Terror in the Isles. When this came out, it wasn't a success. It wasn't an immediate hit. Terror in the Isles, I think, did a lot to kind of raise its profile because once you'd seen those scenes, then you were curious about the movie. I think Jack Shoulders got really good chops. I think from the beginning, he knew what he was doing. He'd go on to direct uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and a film I like very much, The Hidden. I think that it is a solidly written, well-acted, good slasher movie, and I think that's all it is. I don't think it subverts the slasher genre. I don't think it's really trying to say anything different about it. I think it's just, for 1982, about as good a meat and potatoes down the middle slasher film as anybody was going to make that year. And then that cast runs. Uh, So, you know, there you go. There's a a semi-obscure horror film. I've been getting a little bit of flack for criticizing a lot of uh, early 80s horror films, but I think right about now, Alone in the Dark is one, and, and Evil Speak, those two were the kind, I think, that maybe kickstarted my, I could watch the grown-up horror. I'm not too young for that. So uh, I, I think that you'll we'll find moving forward, I'm a, a bit more excited uh, about the uh, horror films. Okay, so we, um, we talked about uh, Jimmy the Kid, and we talked about um, a couple of other kids' films and what passed as a kids' film back then. This next movie was sold as a kid's film, and I just want to say to anybody involved in that marketing decision, what the hell were you thinking? Let's talk about They Call Me Bruce. He walked like him. He talked like him. Give me five, yo, mama, get down. He even cooked like him. He wanted to be just like Bruce Lee. So he regulated his diet. Began intensive training. Yeah! And learned to live like a great samurai master. 
You must know Kung Fu. Oh, yeah, I once stepped in it. And as his reputation spread throughout the land, his days became filled with new challenges. Eating chicken with nunchucks. Defeating criminals with a flick of his hand. And defending good against evil. The Chinese boy got a funny mouth. Mm-hmm. They call me Bruce, a superhero America can believe in. Oh, man. Uh, I saw this repeatedly on HBO and VHS as a kid. My friends loved it. I thought it was okay. This movie does not really hold up. It's a really dated and kind of sloppy. I still like him in this movie. He is likable. No? We're on different pages. I thought he was singularly unappealing. I think he's about 25 years too old for the role he's playing. He's a cook for the mafia, and he's Chinese, so they all call him Bruce and make jokes about Bruce Lee to him all the time. I thought it was breathtakingly racist all the way through. I thought the whole film was racist. Like, I didn't care for it from the opening song, Oriental Boy Running Down the Street. There's a scene in this movie where somebody gets knocked out and they need to wake him up to talk to him. So they grab a bag of cocaine and stick it under his nose and he sits up and goes, well, I'm awake now. This was a kid's film. This was marketed as a children's movie. Afternoon programming, commercials, nonstop. That's the only audience they aim this thing at. This movie is basically a bunch of sketches with a, a lot of him spouting Henny Youngman type one-liners. There are five credited writers on this movie. Five. Oh, he is a hacky comic. Margot Hemingway, not to be confused with her sister Mariel, plays the femme fatale. Not well. Do not mistake this as a satire of kung fu movies because it is not. It is a farce about a Chinese cook. It plays kind of like a Cheech and Chong movie, frankly, where he's you know tricked into being a coke mule. The coke mule stuff is, is what blows my mind. It's a cocaine trafficking comedy. But, you know, bring the family. That's good. <laughs> I remember the Vestron VHS had like a... Yeah. The Vestron cover had him on a crutch and there was like four images behind him. I ne I believe you, but I do not remember They Call Me Bruce being sold as a kid's movie. And one thing I noticed in my research is it did good money. Oh, yeah. It was a big hit. And I remember parents, neighborhood parents, taking groups of kids to go see this thing and... It played, it obviously worked, it did what it was supposed to, and yeah, I find the whole thing a little baffling at this point when I look at it. Now, I don't believe it played theaters, so will we Will we be covering They Still Call Me Bruce? I'm not looking forward to seeing that one. <laughs> All right? Now we move on to something I had never seen, and I found myself completely enraptured by it. It was one of the very few uh, Robert Altman films I hadn't seen before, and it's called Come back to the fine bit dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. To James Dean. The eyes, the James Dean. He was everything they lived for. Sandy Dennis. I, did, I feel something so deep inside me about James Dean. Joe, why did you have to come back here? Karen Black. I had as much right to return to this reunion as anybody. Come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. We just watched this one the other night, and Lisa hadn't seen it either, and I hadn't seen it in years. It is very stagey. It is definitely drawing on that same impulse that I think Coppola had at the time. Some could say intentionally so, because Altman could take a stage adaptation and widen it big time if he wanted to. But this, to me, seems like he chose to keep it very stagey. Well, and it was part of the cost. It was also, he shot this thing for nothing. You know, we look at this, and we look at Cher, and Cher, Cher has already had her full career as an actor, where she's gone through the arc of she started as a joke, then she became accepted, then she won an Oscar, then she became an icon, and now she's an actor. 
Cher again. And at this point, Cher was still a joke. And the idea that Altman cast her was in and of itself kind of hilarious to people. At this stage, Cher was known as a pop star and she had a variety show. Uh, I'm sure when this came out that she was greeted with the same type of reviews and reactions that we would get for any pop star who fancies themselves an actor. But she got the final laugh because Cher went on to become a great actor. This is the moment where that begins because she's so good in this. She's and- damn good in this. And this um, this movie stars Cher, Sandy Dennis, Karen Black, and Kathy Bates as members of a Jimmy Dean fan club who uh, reunite uh, 30 years after his death at a five and dime where they all used to work. I I remember thinking as it's opening, you know, how's this movie going to fill 110 minutes? There's a lot of history. Each one of the women has their own backstory. Some of them are a little bit predictable. Some of them are definitely not. The performances are great. It feels like a stage play in that you just pick up these little human touches that you can relate to and go, oh, yeah, I've done that. My sister, I can relate to that. I feel that. I'd love that. It's based on the uh, stage play by Ed Gratchick and... Uh, Altman also directed the stage play, and the coolest thing about this is he brought the entire cast over from Broadway. He didn't bring three of them and recast two with movie stars. He brought the whole cast over, and I thought that was very admirable. This fits into the larger trend that 1982 had going on. It was a surprisingly LBGTQ-friendly year on film. I find that really compelling, that there's all these movies that treated this one basic subject matter with a wide variety of perspectives over the course of a year. So by the end of 1982, you had films that had come at it from all sorts of different perspectives and ideas and that encompassed a pretty wide range of human behavior and experience. I think it speaks really well to 1982. I think it's shocking that it has taken as long as it has to finally get back to a place where I feel like we're making movies on a regular basis again that do what this year did so well. But 1982, by any barometer, has got to be considered a major, groundbreaking, important year in in the way members of that community feel about how they have been treated and talked about on film. Definitely, and the way this film handles it is in a very matter-of-fact, true-to-life way. This feels like something that might have been written today. Oh, it feels absolutely current in terms of the way people want to talk about it in the film and the way other characters react and the conversations that happen because of it. You realize that, considering this is 1982, it's 35 years, and we've not gotten very far in the conversation. Yeah, and I uh, the, the whole cast is great, but I do want to uh, throw in a quick note for... The late, great Sandy Dennis didn't know much of her her as a kid. She was mainly a stage actor. She didn't have the sort of film career that somebody of her talent should have had. In a movie filled with good performances, hers is heartbreakingly good. Uh, And now we move to a film that I am am almost embarrassed to admit that I had never seen prior to a few weeks ago. And the reason I'm embarrassed to admit that is because not only am I a desperate, loyal Monty Python fan— But Michael Palin is probably my favorite python. So, Drew, let's sit down. Are you sitting down? And discuss The Missionary. Charles Fortescue, missionary, returns to London to the polite society he left behind. All I would ask is that you come dancing with me tonight. To the woman he loves. Deborah, do you know what is meant by fallen women? Women who have hurt their knees. And to the most perilous job of his career. How are you with women? I know you're good with Africans, but how are you with 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 women? Women. 
find out why they do what they do and stop them doing it. Channel 4 presents The Missionary. Where's the unimportant sex is? Oh, good. <laughs> he gave his body to save their souls. I got a little bit obsessed with handmade films and with tracking down all the movies they made and... And that was late 80s when I kind of went through that phase. And The Missionary is certainly one of the ones that I was excited to find precisely because of what you say, Michael Palin. He wrote this. He stars in it. And I would say that of all the Pythons, I think John Cleese is a terrific talent. I think uh, they all have the things that they do well. I think Gilliam is an amazing filmmaker. I think Michael Palin's the best actor. I think he's terrific here. This is a comedy about a reverend for church of england so he can get married he's uh, part of the reformed church he's been in africa for 10 years he comes back to england it's the early 1900s and he is now supposed to get married and then he's told that he's going to be doing missionary work with the fallen women in the london dock area oh and there's a great sequence where i mean he's playing a smart intelligent experienced grown man and there's an explanation where his superior tries in vain to explain to him that he means prostitutes he's got to oversee and caretake for prostitutes that's his assignment watching this movie i just cringe to think like what if this movie was made in 82 with like dan Aykroyd? yeah no this is a very different very british comedy of manners very refined even the stuff that gets bawdy or dirty is very classy about it oh watch the scene where maggie smith finally corners michael palin because she's chasing him through a good chunk she's of the movie great if you only know maggie smith as kind of an uptight librarian type you've got to see this movie where she is 100 percent horny for michael palin it's gr- she's funny as hell when she finally catches him it's a pretty great sequence and it's all done below the covers Maggie Smith sells the first half of the scene, and Michael Palin definitely sells the second half. Denim Elliott is phenomenal. You know Denim Elliott as Indy's professor friend in Raiders, and he's just a great character actor. We'll get to him in our next film, too. Uh, Timothy Spall shows up in a uh, young role here. Um, very, yeah, very young Timothy Spall. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, and it's loosely based on a real story that happened. And like a lot of the handmade films, what I love most about it is that there is a feeling that the movie mattered to somebody, that this is not product that they cranked out because they were a studio and they had to have 50 films out for the year. The name of their company was Apt. I get the feeling that every one of the movies they made was made because somebody was passionate about getting it made. And in this case, Michael Palin is that somebody. And it's the script is something that there's a real wit to it. There's a warmth to the way he treats the girls over the course of this picture where this could be a sex joke if you went one way. It could be gross if you went one way. It treats sex workers with respect. And there is something that... Even the films that we've talked about before, like uh, Night Shift or Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, it is rare that you see movies treat sex workers as people with agency or as people who have made a decision that is not just, oh my God, I got trapped into this life and it's all terrible. There are sex workers in this world who have made a decision to do this and they are not victims. And that is important that sometimes you see that in movies too. And there's one woman in this early on where Palin is talking to her about what his mission is going to be. And she rolls her eyes and she's like, oh, okay, I know the I know the shtick. She's the one who says to him, you're a man, you're a human being, all we are is human beings. Let's not treat this as you need to save us from anything. One of the best scenes in the movie is when he goes to meet the first prostitute. And she's very plain and matter of fact. And the conversation is 
trying to prove to him that these are normal human urges. And if you think you're above us, you're not going to work well with us. I think that's really important. I think that is what the movie does best. Handmade Films was started by George Harrison and Dennis O'Brien, and there was a, a number of projects that he wanted to see get made, and it started with Life of Brian. Life of Brian got made because of them with Nail and I. All the way through when Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels got made, they were still a major production company. Um, Long Good Friday, they really were a remarkable company for the brief time that they existed. There's a, a real sense that the films that they made probably wouldn't have existed any other way. Or would have been very different. If these movies were all made by studio people, The Missionary would not look like it does now. If I have to throw a little criticism towards this movie, the third act gets a little too wacky for its own good. But it leads to the biggest reveal in the movie where suddenly somebody is not who they seem to have been for the uh, the rest of the film. It is definitely him making the bid to have the film jump and become something larger at the end in a love story between characters that you don't realize there's supposed to be a love story between. And that's a little bit weird to make that shift late in the movie. Now, we have an interesting situation here because this film was directed by Richard Longcrane, and our next film was also directed by Richard Longcrane. So like last month was a Ted Kotcheff feast, this month is a Longcrane stravaganza. Scott, what was his second movie? Brimstone and Treacle. This is the second time we're kind of running into Dennis Potter. Obviously, Pennies from Heaven, which we both were big fans of, was based on a work of his and was an Americanization after there had been an earlier British version. The same thing is true here. There was a, a television play version of Brimstone and Treacle. They got pulled from release because it was very graphic, and I don't think in the 70s TV was really ready for it. It was not shown again until well after this version was made, which was for a theatrical release. This version was supposed to be, I think, a David Bowie vehicle. The early TV version was a Denholm Elliott film, this is a Denholm Elliott film, and the only difference was who played the other major character, who is Martin. It's played by Sting. Who is maybe the worst human being alive. And uh, Denham Elliott and Joan Plowright uh, have a handicapped daughter. She was in a, a horrible accident, and she is now uh, completely bedridden and mentally... Uh, yeah, she's locked in this semi-vegetative state where she's awake and she's conscious, but she's unable to express herself or move or do anything for herself. And Joan Plowright has uh, dedicated her life to taking care of her handicapped daughter. Denham Elliott is, uh, ironically, he's out writing, I believe, greeting cards? Is that what he writes? Obituaries? And he is somebody whose entire job is predicated on selling this idea that the world will be okay. That everything will everything will work out. His job is to write false platitudes for a living. Contrast that with his home life and now the arrival of this mysterious stranger who claims to have been their daughter's ex-boyfriend, and the mom immediately falls for it. We know deep down it's because she just she wants to fall for it. And Denim Elliott does not fall for it, but he finds that the guy's presence makes his wife and daughter happy, uh, so he tries to go along with it, and then it leads to a very disturbing place. I enjoyed it. It's a challenging film. Sting is quite good. The music is interesting, done by the police, of course, and two fantastic performances from Denim Elliott and Joan Plowright. I did not see this film for many, many years, but I had the soundtrack because I was a massive police fan. And so I know the soundtrack really, really well, both the instrumental music and the songs I burn for you. And then the uh, closing version he does of uh, Spread a Little Happiness, which is almost like a English pop tune from the uh, the 30s or 40s. It is 
an odd soundtrack to say the least. And to finally see the movie that the images go with uh, was a strange experience. I think the film is good. I think you can see Dennis Potter in it definitely. Dennis Potter is a guy who has a very jet black view of the world. And I think he genuinely believes the worst of people and the worst of what we will do given the opportunity. And Martin represents a guy who's just constantly, he's the guy walking down the street who sticks his finger in the change thing of every payphone and who tries the doors on cars as he goes by to see if they're unlocked. Not because he's going to do something, but because maybe. He's shifty. And then, of course, as the movie goes on, you start to maybe get the idea that he's meant to be a stand-in for something uh, supernaturally evil. Yeah, which I think is more just in his head. I think he is a sad little man who um, wants to be something more more dynamic and evil. This man is not the devil. He is a flesh-and-blood person, but his presence alone is the devil. And it's a difficult movie, but I, I was into it. I think it's a solid, grimy little movie that uh, we've talked about how there's certain plot points and things that I get uncomfortable with. I think this movie earns everything it does. It gets where it's going organically. It's not going to blindside you. You know where it's going. And so I think for that reason, like even though it's tough sit and it's really ugly in places, yeah, I would say it's worthwhile. And I think for Sting fans, if you're curious about him as a dramatic actor, this is a moment where he was kind of going toe-to-toe with people that were way above his game, his typical game so far. And working with Dennis Potter material like this... It's a good point. A lot of people in his position might have been in fear. But no, he's very confident and very very cocky, and uh, you find him temporarily charming and then feel bad. You don't want to like him. <laughs> okay, we move from a, a very adult and difficult movie to a very simple and family-friendly... I fell asleep during The Man from Snowy Weber. <laughs> He had only one wish, to prove himself a man. Make your plan with someone else's daughter. I didn't carve this place out of the bush to see Jessica run off with the first fortune hunter to come along. She had only one dream, to find out who she was. Together they fought and struggled and loved in a land as untamed as beautiful as they themselves. A story of triumph. Will you look at that? A story of love. A story of a boy who becomes a man. The Man from Snowy River. Man from Snowy River was one of those sleepers. It's funny that you fell asleep. This is where I learned the term sleeper. It was a movie that came out, 20th Century Fox released. It was an Australian pickup for them. It did better than anybody expected it to. It wasn't a massive runaway hit, but it did fine considering it was basically nobody you'd ever heard of, except in supporting roles, and a little quiet family drama that came out right in the middle of the holidays. Um, Boring! (laughs) I will say this. Any movie that has not one, but two Kirk Douglases is pretty good, and if one of them has a peg leg, you get bonus points. I I thought I was in a pirate movie. It is pretty standard stuff. It's a kid who lives on a ranch in the high mountains. His parents die. He is told that he has not earned the right to work the land. And so he goes into the lowlands to prove himself, and he goes to work for a cattle rancher played by Kirk Douglas, 
who is estranged from his brother, also played by Kirk Douglas, because of something. For years, I thought this film was directed by the George Miller. I had that confusion briefly. It is not. It is directed yes. by the other George Miller. The other Australian George Miller. No the, yes, both Australian. Uh, director of The NeverEnding Story 2. Uh. The most exciting thing about it, there is one terrific writing sequence in this movie that is beautifully shot, beautifully cut, and if you love horses, really thrilling. But the rest of the movie, eh, eh. It's beautiful to look at. It, it truly is. The cinematography, the Australian landscape, uh, even just the horses running just where the ca- director chose to put his camera, it's gorgeous to look at. But you know what? So is my cat. You know, I'm not going to watch him for 90 minutes. <laughs> That's not true. I've seen you watch Jones for 90 minutes. Now we move to the debut of director Susan Seidelman, Smithereens. Doesn't it feel like Desperately Seeking Susan is basically just a remake of this, but with Madonna? And slightly more likable characters. Yeah, because this is the other comparison I would make is it's like if the main character in The Fabulous Stains made a movie about herself. There is a dirty authenticity to this movie that I like. You know, it's a girl in her 20s living in New York who wants to be famous, but probably doesn't have the talent or the interest in putting in the time to do so. Smithereens brings up an interesting issue that we see on Twitter sometimes. Is it possible to like a film if you don't like the characters? Absolutely, you can. You need, in some way, to be able to relate or empathize. You need some entry point, otherwise you're watching robots, you know. For this movie, the characters are patently unlikable, but... The film is interesting because I think that's kind of her point. Her point is that these young people are building this wall around them, this too cool wall. It's an interesting film in that it it kind of analyzes this selfish, uh, egocentric attitude of young people and doesn't judge. And I think that's kind of also what makes the film slightly unappealing. To a large extent, when you move to New York or you move to L.A. and you're determined you're going to make it, So many of these kids move out here with no real idea what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. They just want to be here. She is a great example, and so is the guy living in the van, of these kids who risked everything to come live in New York for no real discernible reason other than they want to be near shit. They want to be in the middle of it. I feel like everything she does, every word out of her, every action she takes, every decision she makes in the movie is a pose. And that is essentially unlikable. Halfway through the movie, and you start to realize either A, I don't like her and her two on-again, off-again boyfriends, and I don't care, or I don't really like her, but I'm still interested in what's going on. And that was how I felt. I admire that it's unwavering in the fact that these are not meant to be sympathetic young people. These are meant to be angry, aimless. Do you hate them for being angry and aimless, or can you empathize? Yeah, it's shaggy. It's not great, but it it does have some charm and some character, and you can see how Seidelman is going to get better as she gets older. Yeah. Uh, We will get to Susan Seidelman several more times in the decade. Drew mentioned Desperately Seeking Susan. We'll also cover Making Mr. Right, Cookie, and She-Devil. Drew, speaking of women, can you name the only horror trilogy in history that was directed by three different women? I can. It would be the Slumber Party Massacre series. The basketball team is planning a party. A slumber party. 
party begins at 8 o'clock. But be on the lookout for an uninvited guest. Please, please. When the pizza arrives, things really start jumping. Some people may have to leave early. But others will hang around and hang around. I'm not going to eat that bad guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. One thing's for sure. No one's getting any sleep the night of the Slumber Party Massacre. Close your eyes for a second and sleep forever. I will say this. I think the most radically feminist thing about this movie is that it is just as generic and sex-obsessed as any male-directed slasher film of the era. What's interesting, on one hand, you could say, why should a horror film, a slasher movie that's written and directed by women, why should that be necessarily any more morally superior? However, it is noted for the record that screenwriter Rita Mae Brown, renowned as a feminist author, wrote this as a parody, and the producers sanded down her screenplay and chose to do it more or less as a straight slasher. And I cannot imagine that she was thrilled. It's kind of an entertaining... It's okay. It very much plays by the rules of the era. It's surprisingly violent in places. The murder instrument itself, like what this guy likes to use, pretty upsetting. It's hard to say if it's meant to be satirical, but all I know is we are looking at lots of naked boobs. And now if that's meant to be like, oh, here's what you wanted, and it's here in the first 10 minutes, if that's meant to be a sly joke, then fine, but it doesn't really play that way. But in between the kills, like when you're there just setting up the girls and all as characters, it's got some fairly decent dialogue. It's not just puerile junk. Miss Brown probably said, well, here's a chance. There is some interplay between the girls that's effective. But once it gets down to the kills, it's very perfunctory and silly. Uh, Directed by Amy Holden Jones, better known as a screenwriter, she wrote Indecent Proposal. She wrote Mystic Pizza, Beethoven, and The Relic. So I'm a big fan of Amy Holden Jones, and good for her. This next movie, now we talked about Hanna-Barbera taking their swing at theatrical animated features. We're at a moment where we talked about how Disney was vulnerable, and I feel like anybody could have stepped up and become the new king had they just delivered the material. Rankin-Bass certainly wanted to take their swing, and their uh, movie was called The Last Unicorn. She is a creature of legend. In an age of sorcery and savagery. Well, what have we here? <laughs> Demons. No! And dragons. She may be the last unicorn. People of our generation will probably know Rankin best, best from what? Christmas specials? TV stuff. Is, I mean, they were huge on TV, and The Hobbit was gigantic. I adore their version of The Hobbit. I truly do. Author Peter Beagle had his choice of production companies, and he went with Rankin Bass. He chose them. This is easily some of their best animation. A lot, Some of their stuff was good, and a lot of their stuff was uh, cheap. This film has some really beautiful animation, and I believe that a lot of it has to do with some of the key artists in this film were Japanese artists that would eventually go on to co-found Studio Ghibli. When you see Japanese names in an American animated film from 1982, you go, ooh, that's a good sign. This movie really works. It's a fun adventure movie. I had never seen it as a kid. I thought I had 
But I'm like halfway into this movie thinking, I've never seen this. It's about a last unicorn, as played by Mia Farrow, and her quest to find other unicorns. You don't like this movie? First of all, I don't think Mia Farrow should ever sing in public again. I'm not entirely sure she knew she was being recorded when they did the musical numbers in this film. It is startling how not a great singer she is. If you're going to do a musical, one of the key ingredients should be music that doesn't make people want to die. The songs in this film were written by Jimmy Webb and performed by America, the band probably best known for what? Horse With No Name, Sister Golden Hair. The songs, I might be opening myself up to ridicule here, but I thought they were okay. I think this is neck and neck with Lady Hawk for most insane fantasy score of the year. Good or bad almost goes out the window. Just insane. Like, I, I don't get the score. It is a better animated film than Heidi's song, clearly. Uh, but it still lurches back and forth between moments that are gorgeous, really gorgeous in places, and TV animation. If you can't be consistent just with how good your animation is going to be over the course of a film don't make the film man if you can't animate on ones all the way through for those if you're not an animation nerd if you're doing 24 frames per second and you do 24 separate drawings for that second that's animating on ones and that's disney stuff that's when it's beautiful and it's fluid and it looks like it's motion doing it on twos is where you do only 12 of those drawings per second and then you can go even further than that and tv animation gets down to threes sometimes or even fours it's the reason it all looks stutter stop and jerky and it doesn't really look fluid or beautiful and i can't take your theatrical feature seriously if you didn't even make the bare minimum effort to get it up to theatrical standard for animation and this movie lurches back and forth uh, you're right no the i will give you that the animation quality is inconsistent but at its best it has some truly beautiful stuff at its worst it does feel like uh you know maybe above average tv grade alan arkin almost unrecognizable as the lead character he's playing a young guy it's weird listening to him kind of raise his voice so he's in a different register than Alan Arkin. The whole cast is weird. Jeff Bridges is in this. And it's young Jeff Bridges, so it's the opposite. It's we're used to his voice older now, and here he's still young and upper register. So. Christopher Lee, Angela Lansbury, Paul Fries, Keenan Wynn. I think I'm being like maybe one full star charitable because it's like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at them as they were made for children. And I'll say this. I tried to show this to the boys until she looked at the thumbnail of it and went, nope. Well, what is Come on. Even that doesn't mean any. That doesn't mean nothing. He's a snotty little kid. I'm alive. Any of these movies, I am still curious how easy it is or how hard it is to introduce them to a younger audience who's walking in without any hyper sales pitch. And sometimes they'll look at something and go, I'll watch that. This one, it was an instant rejection just based on the title. Let me ask you this, though. Your boys weren't into The Last Unicorn, but would they watch Creepshow? They have watched Creepshow. We're going to close out November 1982 with easily one of the most entertaining horror anthologies of all time. Tales of horror that will give you the creeps. This is going to be extremely painful. 
painful, Mr. Verrill. <laughs> the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Creep show. Rated R. When did you see it the first time? Did you see it theatrical or did you see it home video? No, I saw it as a kid, probably the first or second week it hit Warner Brothers clamshell. Because the comic book came out way before the movie did. I did have the comic book, the, the, the red cover, Bernie Wrightson thing, and I was not a comic book collector, yet I owned this. Yeah, they put it out They put it out really early because I got it that summer, at the beginning of the summer, at a science fiction convention. And it was the first science fiction convention I ever went to. I was super excited because they had actual guests there who actually did stuff. When I was in the the merchant's room, they had the Creepshow comic. First time I'd ever seen it. And I was like, I don't know what this is. Stephen King, George Romero. Oh, my God. And I bought it. And later that day was in an elevator with a friend of mine. And as we're standing in the elevator... My friend starts elbowing me frantically, and I turn around and I realize Stephen King is standing behind us. Hi. My name is Stephen King. And so we wigged out. We lost our minds. We asked him about Creepshow, and he promised that it'd scare us really bad. And, oh, my God, when I finally got to see it and I went with my friend and his older brother, it was one of those lightning bolt, holy crap, I can't believe how well they pulled this off movies. I'm not positive, but we did this a lot. But I do believe this might have been one we literally rewound, ordered a pizza, and watched again. Yeah, why not, man? It's so much fun. The wraparound is just your basic uh, cautionary tale of do not take comic books away from your children. And I lived in a house where my dad would shred horror magazines and comic books. My dad, I used to come home from school, and this happened more than once, and I would find a shredded Fangoria on my pillow. All right, so the wraparound is fun, and it does set a nice tone for the rest of the stories. Then we move into Father's Day, which is about a bunch of rotten assholes who gather at an old lady's home to kind of wheedle their way into the will. They all end up getting killed by a a horrible ghoul brought back from the dead. I thought it was all about Ed Harris disco dancing. Ed Harris disco dancing is (laughs) wonderful. Uh, All right, so what do you give Father's Day on a one to five scale? I think Father's Day is a good solid three. I think it's a great place to start. It is a traditionally built EC comic story. Terrible people. There's a thing outside. It comes in. People die. But it's got a great punchline, and uh, that Tom Savini head cake uh, is a bloody mess of a nightmare. Uh, Second story, I believe, is Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. That stars Stephen King as a dumb farmer who sticks his fingers in something he shouldn't and turns into something he don't like. Not a huge fan of this one. (laughs) Look, his performance is so big and broad that I have over the years come to love that it is just cartoonish i guess but i mean like there it is this should have been five minutes and animated now if you had gone the other direction and you had cast a terrific actor and you'd really played the i'm turning into a plant i'm gonna kill myself that's a very different short as well this is where you kind of get a real sense of who stephen king was at this. yeah a guy who wrote an uncredited remake of color out of space by lovecraft that's what he did that's what this story is i think he just loved goofy and he loved a certain kind of like big broad i think stephen king's got a redneck side to him that's a mile wide like i get it it's supposed to be you know it's very different from the rest of the stories but when I've seen Creepshow probably eight or nine times, and every time I watch it, I'm like, let's get this one over with. Then we move to, I believe, The Crate. It is 
the highlight of the film. It is fantastically funny and gross and scary. I love it, love it, love it. I want to find out more about this freaking creature. Yeah, I love Fluffy, and I think Adrienne Barbeau is the best monster in the movie. She's so terrible and hilarious, and you want to talk about somebody who knows her job. I love when an actor embraces a role like Billy. You know, Holbrook in this is hilarious, and I think Fritz Weaver is terrific in this, and yeah, it's such a good segment, and Fluffy is a terrific design by Savini. It's a monster in a box. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You To scare, and you know, 35 years later, we still love this sequence, and it's not because it's like something we've never seen before. It's because it's something we've seen before done remarkably well. And then we move to the one that I didn't like as a kid, but now like more as an adult. Something to tide you over. Uh, starring Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson. This is very traditional EC form, which is somebody does something awful, and then something awful happens to them as a result. Very basic morality play. And, you know, Ted Danson plays a uh, Lothario who had an affair with Leslie Nielsen's wife, and now Leslie Nielsen, who is 10,000 miles away from Frank Drebin at this point, he decides that he's going to bury Ted Danson in the sand up to his head while the tide comes in, and it leads to where you probably expect, but it's very entertaining, very fun. And then we uh, move to the final story, uh, They're Creeping Up on You, starring E.G. Marshall as a rotten old man who lives in a very icy cold apartment by himself. And he is uh, inundated with cockroaches uh, that he cannot get rid of. And it, 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 if you don't like cockroaches, never see this. What's the matter, Mr. Pratt? Bug at your tongue. I love this one simply because it is the grossest of gross gross outs. What I love about Creepshow is that it's a big fat meal of a movie. It's really colorful. The cast knows what tone they're going for. Romero, God bless him, really knew what he was doing. I would go so far as to say I love the dead movies. I think this is the most purely entertaining thing Romero ever made. Yeah, horror fans can dream of all the different collaborations that we might have had between King and Romero, but this to me is like King writing the screenplay, Romero directing it, Warner Brothers staying away, and letting them work. This might be the purest distillation of these two guys in film together. It played so well with the boys. We, we did it in two halves. We did everything through the crate the first night. And then the second night we did the other suit story. And man, it played like gangbusters. They loved it. They had such a good time. And the crate is an all-timer for them. In my dream world, I would take the raft from Creepshow 2 and switch it with the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. And then you'd be a very happy man. I would be so happy. That's the ultimate creep show because the raft from Creep 2 is really good. So that is November of 1982. We want to thank every single person out there who put their ears on this podcast. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, please go on. We could use uh, some more patrons. We always could. Every other week, we're putting out bonus episodes. Drew's done a great chat with Bill Hader and an old pal of his, Bill Roseman. We have more interviews upcoming with celebrities. And our next bonus episode, I believe, will be an interview with my mom. I'm so excited about that. I love that idea. Guys, please support the Patreon. And more importantly, Carry the word out there. If you love 80s all over, you are the ones that are going to get other people to listen to the podcast. Please go to iTunes, rate and review the show. Carry the word to message boards, social media, wherever you can. Let people know that they need to tune in, find the show, download the show, make it part of their lives. Thank you. You guys have been tremendous about that so far. 
And I promise you, this next one, oh my God, coming up next time, we have got giant movie stars like Paul Newman, Burt Reynolds, Richard Pryor, and Clint Eastwood, and at least one of them is in a film that doesn't suck. You will want to punch James Caan in the face super hard. Famed siblings Dudley and Mary Tyler Moore team up on screen for the very first time, and while Hollywood takes its biggest shots of the year with giant films like Tootsie and Gandhi and Sophie's Choice, a young man named Eddie Murphy is poised to grab a badge and kick open the door to superstardom with a motherfucking vengeance. We will see you here for December of 1982. And Hell Knight. <laughs> <laughs> Nice.